0: This podcast includes frank discussions of mature themes that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast is intended to provide encouragement and support through personal storytelling. The views expressed are the opinions of the participants and not intended to be medical, legal, clinical, or professional information or advice of any kind.
1: Welcome to the Bubble Hour.
2: Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Welcome to the Bubble Hour.
3: Welcome
4: to the Bubble Hour. Welcome, 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 welcome welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bubble Hour. I own it, I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Weakness head on.
0: Jean McCarthy, and you're listening to The Bubble Hour. Welcome back. This is part seven out of 10 in our 10th and final season. As we look back over a decade of The Bubble Hour, many notable recovery authors come to mind as memorable interviews. As the years went by, the show steadily rose through online rankings as a top recovery podcast. The Promotions Department from Publishing Houses began sending books to consider, and I soon found myself absolutely swamped with manuscripts and guest proposals. More than 50 authors have been featured on the Bubble Hour, including best-selling names like Claire Pooley, Anne Dowsett-Johnston, and Amanda Ayer Ward. We've also featured influential recovery writers like Ruby Warrington, Amy Dresner, and Erica C. Barnett. Today, I'm thrilled to talk with a fellow author and blogger, the charming, warm, funny Claire Pooley. Claire's blog, Mommy Was a Secret Drinker, began in 2015 and formed the basis for her first book, a memoir called The Sober Diaries. It was such a huge success, and her second book, a novel called The Authenticity Project, is now available. It's sure to
5: be a huge hit as well. Here's
0: Claire Pooley.
5: I think when I was drinking, I was... I was, a, I was very selfish and I think addicts tend to be because, you know, we spend so much of our mental energy thinking about where the next drink is coming from. You know, most of my headspace was filled with, am I going to drink this evening? How much am I going to drink this evening? What am I going to drink this evening? Where am I going to buy it? All those sorts of things constantly interrupting my life. I didn't have the mental space or the energy. You know, any time I wasn't dealing with my addiction, I was dealing with my kids and my own life. I don't think I was a very good friend or a very good wife or a very good person for a while. And I didn't see it when I was in it. But I don't think I'd helped anybody who wasn't, you know, I wasn't directly related to <laughs> probably. But sometimes it gave me back my, my self-respect in many ways. You only have the energy to help other people if you are yourself in a relatively good place and I wasn't when I was uh, when I was drinking when you're really truthful about your life, nothing can hurt you because nobody was going to turn around and call me a lush because I'd already done that myself. You know, I'd already called myself a bad mother. I'd already told everyone that, you know, that my life was out of control and that for a long time I wasn't a particularly good person. So anybody else saying that back to me was not going to have an effect. That was a really liberating realisation When you're really truthful about your life, other people are really kind. When you make yourself vulnerable, people are really, really kind. Since then, I've had literally thousands of messages from people all over the world saying what a difference that book made to them because they, like me, were feeling really alone. They were feeling like I was, that my life was over. And it made them realize that they weren't alone and their life was only just beginning The whole idea behind the Authenticity Project is the idea that everybody lies about their lives and we all put on this front that the truth often is very different that was really inspired by what I had done myself. You know, I'd spent years and years and years hiding the truth. So the book is about an artist who finds a a little notebook and he writes in it, everybody lies about their lives. What would happen if you told the truth instead? And he tells the truth about his life, leaves it in a cafe where it's picked up by the owner who reads his story reads about how lonely he is and decides to track him down and help change his life. And she writes her own truth and then leaves the book somewhere else. the book is passed between six strangers who all tell the truth about their lives and all end up meeting each other and changing each other's lives in miraculous ways. And that really is the recovery community, isn't it? <laughs> you know, in that you know it's, it's about people who are ostensibly very different but who all find each other and make each other's lives better by being authentic. It is fiction, but it's very much inspired by my own life.
0: so Johnston, welcome to the Bubble Hour.
6: Uh, I think it's just a real joy to uh, imagine that there's people out there in the in the listenership of to this show who um, are curious, who you just know through self selection are more curious than most around the the subjects that we're talking about, and because I believe that this is this is something that we help one another with and hand on to one another Uh, and community matters so much that uh, it's a joy to talk about the um, profound psychic and, and spiritual shifts that can happen and not feel um, too self-conscious or goofy about the whole thing. Um, it, It really is transformational recovery and, uh, sometimes you know on a on a good day, I had, as you know from reading the book, some major losses in recovery, but uh, mm-hmm. on a good day, I can say uh, all of this happened for a reason, and uh, there are uh, well, obviously the book wouldn 't have happened without my recovery, but um to write that book was a privilege to be able to share my um, experience of recovery and to take the time in my life and say, I will carve out this space, this, this moment up north with my dogs and write this book. It was really the joy of my life. And so this interview is like this, it was like the book. You know, you, you focus on the listenership that you really believe you're aiming for, which is those who are wrestling with the issue.
0: Excellent books about recovery just keep coming and you will want to make room on your bookshelves for something a little different than the usual how-tos and memoirs. The Sober Lush by Amanda air Ward and Jardine Lebert is a gorgeous keepsake of a book, beautifully designed, and it's been written by two accomplished and celebrated writers who happen to be friends as well as women in recovery. Together, these two explore all of the ways that their lives have become richer and fuller in the absence of alcohol and how recovery has challenged them to seek out beauty, comfort, joy, and indulgence with the new superpower of being completely present and grateful. Amanda is the author of eight novels, most recently The Jet Setters, and Jardine has written six novels, plus has written for TV and film, including the recently released movie Endings, Beginnings. Both are accomplished and talented, and yet the sober lush, they embark on something new in exploring their personal stories of recovery and friendship. Amanda and Jardine, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank, Thank you so much for having me. to be here. How does it feel to tell your own story? Are you both feeling a little vulnerable right now? Are you taking it in stride? Amanda, how does it feel for you?
7: It is not a comfortable place for me at all. (laughs) To some extent, I'm thrilled for it to be out in the world because I would have liked to find a book like this, and I'm really excited at the thought that maybe someone who needs to quit will decide to quit or be inspired to drink less from this book. That would mean everything to me. It would be a use for all the misery that I went through, Um, but I'm really uncomfortable talking about it. We talked about this a little bit. It's, um, you know, AA is anonymous, and so it's strange to come out and, and talk about it. Jardine had been sober longer than me, and when I got sober, I went through every day and did everything exactly the same without wine. And it was terrible. You know, I went to the same parties and just stood there with a a glass of that Mm fray, fake wine or a seltzer. You know, I didn't have any tools. I just was like, well, I'm going to do this and life's going to be gray. And that's just the way it is because I have to quit. And then a friend, a mutual friend said, you know, Amanda, you should meet my friend Jardine. And I remember... It was so magical for me going to Jardine's house for the first time. And it was very early in my sobriety. And I arrived for coffee, and her house was just so welcoming and elegant, and she had books I wanted to read on her shelves, and we sat and talked. And you know that incredible connection you have when you talk with other people in recovery, the right people— when you just feel like you can say anything and I cried and I snuggled with Loverman, the chihuahua, and <laughs> I just, I looked around and I thought, Oh, this is what I want. You know, I, I don't have to just have a grim and gray life where I've removed my anesthesia. I can Build a whole new, beautiful life filled with incredible things. And my friendship with Jardine was the first incredible thing. and i'm and then so together we talked about that. and uh, you'd already gone you'd already figured a lot of this out, Jardine. um
8: some of it, but our friendship and the conversations we had, and then the conversation as it turned into this book just helped me grow so much more and You know, I think Amanda and I did a ton of work, like, because the book required it, zeroing in on the many different things we thought we would have to give up and lose. And it's been like a fourth wave of revelation for me, you know, deeper into sobriety to see, oh, yes, you know, communal gathering and eating. That's been so important to me since I was a kid because of how I grew up. That is part of why I clung to drinking, because I didn't want to give up that, that feeling. And so Amanda and I have been kind of forensically figuring out together, you know, how to break down this bigger idea of celebrating that sobriety can be beautiful into the many different little ways of of um, celebrating the, the hour that you're in or the thing that you used to do. The Sober Lush is an ode and a roadmap to the technicolor and playful side of sobriety. So it's not about how to get sober or stay sober. I think both Amanda and I are on the side of, you know, that is for an individual to decide. I could not have gotten sober using a book. Um, Some people maybe can, but it's also not a book about just recovery or just substances. It ends up being about motorcycle riding and skinny dipping and honey and ice skating and all these other Um, pieces of life and and that to us mirrors how getting sober was not even about sobriety in the ways that we thought it was but but about living in life that's the best I can do that's (laughs) Uh, bravo bravo I'd buy
0: that
3: book (laughs)
0: I'm holding space for none other than Ruby Warrington, the author of Sober Curious, and she has a new book out, a workbook that is fantastic. It's called The Sober Curious Reset.
9: The thought of quitting complete abstinence for life was like being taken up to the edge of the cliff and someone's saying just jump off! just jump off and down the bottom is like nirvana it's it's nirvana down they just gotta jump (laughs) (laughs) okay sure (laughs) but this way is kind of you know getting tooled up getting a map getting a backpack getting supplies finding the kind of like rocky path down the mountain and then the bottom guess what it is nirvana but it's so much easier to contemplate like Our human brain has no reference point for forever. So it's almost impossible to contemplate quitting forever. We don't know how long forever is. We have no way of knowing. Quitting for 30 days is a much easier, manageable chunk of time. And if you tool up to do that 30 days, then I think you're a lot less likely to even want to go back to drinking how you were because you will have discovered so much about the benefits of not drinking And most importantly, the why am I drinking? What is this doing for me? Okay, when I have that information, I can proactively start looking for other things, behaviors, thoughts, practices, activities that do that thing for me. They're not going to look the same and they won't do it in exactly the same way. But I can start to replace alcohol with something else that does actually serve me.
6: What a Story is My Fair Junkie, Amy Dresner's darkly comic memoir of two long decades in and out of addiction in multiple forms.
2: I wanted to write the book to help people. That was really the drive behind it. I wanted to help other addicts feel less alone and feel less ashamed and less broken and to give them hope because as a, you know, someone who had relapsed a lot and been in a lot of rehab, I, there was many times where I was like, I'm just never going to get there. I'm going to die mm-hmm. a drug addict. Like this is not this is, this is not looking good. I wanted people to know it's never too late, and if you're alive, you've got a chance, and just don't give up. I also wanted family and friends of non-addicts to kind of get an inside view of what addiction is like for the addict, like what it's like to be in our brain, the convoluted thinking, the rumination, the compuls the compulsivity, all the negativity, the self-loathing, like what that's like. Just so amazing to turn like 20 years of pain and self-destruction into. A tool that's helping people. It's like, wow! I don't regret a moment of what I went through, because it's helped other people. I know that there's parts that are super, super heavy in the book. I wanted points that where there was some levity, and I also, for myself, I needed to laugh at myself and the circumstances and see the humor to survive some of that stuff. And there was definitely parts where I was like, I don't want to put this on the page, and I just know, as a writer, like that's exactly what you have to put on the page because that is gonna be the thing that someone's gonna go, oh my god, thank you. Like you can't hold back. If you're trying to look good in an addiction memoir, like you're not being honest enough
0: here's Erica C. Barnett, author of Quitter, a memoir of drinking, relapse
10: my book begins with one of many, many rock bottoms that I experienced in my very low-bottom alcoholism. I didn't really start drinking in earnest and heavily until I was well into my 30s, which I think seems a little atypical, but is actually pretty common for women, I discovered while researching the book. I worked with Sarah Heppela, who wrote the great book Blackout at the Chronicle. It was definitely a drinking culture, moved to Seattle, got another job at a publication called The Stranger, which at the time was kind of the coolest alt-weekly in the country, that is when my drinking really got underway. The culture of alternative weekly journalism at the time and the culture of journalism and politics in general, at least in Seattle, really revolved around drinking. You didn't go out for coffee. I mean, that concept was like totally unfamiliar to me until I actually quit drinking and started inviting people out for coffee and it felt very awkward. You went out for drinks. I mean, I drank because I felt uncomfortable in my own skin. I felt like I wasn't cool enough. I wasn't smart or clever enough. I just couldn't sort of meet the standards that I felt the world wanted me to meet. And the thing that made me feel more comfortable was having a few drinks. Unfortunately, you know, I have this genetic predisposition that made it the case that I became addicted pretty quickly and pretty hard. I was in this cycle from which I could not escape. I went to my first detox in my early 30s in 2008, and I really thought at the time that that was all that was going to be necessary. But I thought that if I went to this detox and I was there for five days, and I cleared all the alcohol out of my system, then I would have the willpower to accomplish, uh, you know, sobriety. Or, or I don't even think I thought of it as sobriety. I just thought of it as a return to normal life. If I just quit, then it'll be fine. And of course, that's not how addiction works. It is cunning, baffling, and powerful. And I think baffling um, was the was the the operative word there for me because when I relapsed the first time. There was absolutely no reason. There was no trigger. It wasn't a bad day. It wasn't a good day. I wasn't celebrating. I wasn't mourning. I just thought, hey, maybe I can drink now. The next five years or so kind of went like that. The way it usually happened was I would quit for a little while. I'd start feeling really good because what happens when you quit physically, your body just, you know, I mean, you know this, Gene. it just, it can be like an amazing transformation especially if you have suffered a lot from the um, the physical effects of drinking as I did. I mean, I just, I felt great. I was like, wow, I'm not hungover. Like, I just felt like crap all the time. When I woke up, I had an immediate need for alcohol. I drank all day at the end. It was just constant physical and mental misery. So when I quit, I would feel great. And then eventually, I would just decide I didn't need to be quit anymore. And, it, and, it, and calling a decision is actually overstating it. The vodka would land in my cart at the grocery store, and I wouldn't know how it got there, and then we'd be off to the races again. This went on and on, in this just this endless cycle. And every time, it would get a little bit worse and a little bit worse, and sometimes it would get a little bit better. When I talk about rock bottoms and, and the rock bottom I hit, There are so many examples like that that when I was writing the book, my editor actually cut quite a bit out because it was getting repetitive, which I think really describes the life of a late-stage alcoholic. It's incredibly repetitive. So the instance I describe in the book is I got fired from my job. And I was going to pick up my stuff. I got very, very drunk, came back home from picking up some of my stuff at the office because I was asked to leave because I was so drunk. And getting off the train, falling down on my face, pants falling down to my butt, lying on the ground in the Seattle, pouring rain, and just wondering if I would make it home or if you know I would die in the bushes and the headlines would be about failed writer that died of alcoholism on the sidewalk outside her house. It's sad to describe that event as typical, but the stuff that I cut from the book were, were things like day after day of these individually terrible rock bottom instances that just didn't make me quit. One of the messages that I am trying to convey in the book is that we like to think of this idea that there is an identifiable rock bottom. That is true for some people. It's really important to stay on top of why you got sober in the first place and not just the bad things that were happening beforehand, but the good things that have happened since you got sober. Being sober is not always a picnic. I mean, you still have to live your life and stuff still goes wrong. I think the reason ultimately that I relapsed is that I forgot why I got sober in the first place. Do you ever
0: wish for a little bit of recovery inspiration on the go? Tiny Bubbles is a new podcast that brings you the best bits of the Bubble Hour podcast in quick little episodes, just 15 minutes long, but packed with wisdom, insight, and encouragement to live your life wholeheartedly and alcohol-free. Look for Tiny Bubbles wherever you get podcasts and subscribe today. Tiny Bubbles. Little bits of recovery goodness brought to you by the bubble hour. Sometimes all you need is a little pep talk so you can get back to living that beautiful life you're building. Take Good Care is a new collection of recovery readings inspired by the bubble hour. If you love the encouragement and support you find here on this podcast, then this new book is for you. Visit TheBubbleHour.com for more information or check the show notes for a link to purchase. You'll find Take Good Care on Amazon Worldwide. Take Good Care, recovery reading inspired by The Bubble Hour, the perfect gift for yourself and friends. As a recovery writer myself, I'd connected with other authors around the world. Popular New Zealand writer Lotta Dan, author of three books, including Mrs. D is Going Without, Mrs. D is Going Within, and The Wine O'Clock Myth, appeared numerous times on the show and shared her insights on life after alcohol.
11: My identity was actually fun drinking, Lotta. And I had the two things just completely meshed. And I was absolutely terrified that the fun was going to stop. And worse than that, that I was going to be a boring, sober loser for the rest of my life and that no one would want to hang out with me. You know, I love being a hostess. I love having fun at a party. And I didn't think that that was going to be possible without the alcohol. I was really, really terrified of that. But because I knew I had no option but to stop drinking because it was getting really bad, I just had to dive into that fear. Because what else are you going to do? So Mm -hmm. it was just a matter of trial and error until I managed to find the fun again. But absolutely, the fear is real. And it's terrifying. I mean, you know what it's like when you're standing on the edge of the cliff, staring at a life with no alcohol in it, and it looks like a big, deep, dark ocean, and you have to jump into it. It's, It's horrible. Yeah, how can I be that? person that I like I like the fun lotter how can I be her what if I'm not her anymore when I take the alcohol away what if I don't like who I become if we're not smiling and having fun if we're not on the dance floor there's a problem my twisted drinker's brain was telling me that and and that's the thing that's actually bollocks because we're not all fun all of the time It took a lot of trial and error and just going out to events and, you know, at first I felt really alien in my own skin and and almost like I was wearing a gorilla suit. Um, that no one else could see because I I had my security blanket, you know, fun persona taken away from me. And so I was pretty awkward and uncomfortable and I would do things like smoke heaps of cigarettes or have far too many energy drinks to try and create that vibe that I'd had when I was drinking. But the longer I went you know, without drinking and the more times I went out to parties and then occasionally hit on a really good one when I actually had a really fun time without drinking, the more I realized the power wasn't in the glass, it was in me. And Mm -hmm. if everything lined up for me, I felt good. I was in a good mood. It was the right crowd. I liked the music or the food or whatever. And I had a great night. I had a great night. I mean, I totally had a great night. And I would be the last on the dance floor and I would almost feel drunk. I was having so much fun. And then I'd realize, so this isn't about me drinking. This is about me and the party. But, you know, sometimes that doesn't happen. Either I'm in a bad mood or I don't like my dress or it's not my crowd and I don't feel comfortable or whatever. And I do stand there and I feel a bit... I wouldn't even say it's flat, but I'm just not that fun person. But now I don't mind that because I think that's real too. So I'm not sort of (laughs) so desperate for everything to be the best party ever in the history of the world every time I go out. (laughs) So it's just been a settling down, you know, into into myself when I'm out socially.
0: When an author releases a new title, they go out on a media blitz and talk to as many outlets as possible to get the word out about their new book. In the years since the Bubble Hour began, other recovery podcasts have emerged, and I noticed that many of us would end up with the same guest within a short period of time. I always worked to make sure that my interviews took a little different tack, and before I talked to them on air, I asked authors what they wanted to talk about that no one else had asked them so far. It can be a little monotonous for writers on a media tour to just keep saying the same thing over and over again on different shows, and I think they always appreciated the chance to freshen up the approach. I also made a rule for myself to always read the book, all of it, before interviewing an author, and it may surprise you to hear that this is unusual, and it always meant a lot to the guests. I hope my preparedness made your experience as a listener more enjoyable as well, and helped the guests to shine their best and brightest. The same internet and social media that creates healing connections through recovery blogs, podcasts, Recovery support groups is also the source of the problem in so many ways, as today's guest shows through her memoir, Highlight Reel. Author Emily Lynn Paulson peels back the layer of deception she unwittingly employed to mask the chaos and pain behind the beautiful images she showed to the world. Emily, welcome to the Bubble Hour.
12: What I thought would really be me writing about a mom getting sober turned into this memoir of these patterns and these behaviors that had really shown up through my entire life. And just like you said, with social media being very positive and connecting and also being very detrimental, I was the person who looked like they had it all. And I was really able to hide all of these behaviors and these addictions behind those little squares on social media. My job was going well, my family looked happy, and I was falling deeper and deeper and deeper into my addictions. And really throughout my whole life, I found that I had done that through geographically relocating, um, you know, trying to run away from one problem, trying to reinvent myself constantly, but never really getting to the root of why I was drinking or using in the first place. Part of my downfall, I think, was that I didn't deal with things at all. Things happened, and I, again, like you said, I closed the lid and I sat on it. I didn't deal with it. I didn't look at it. I just assumed I was fine because it wasn't affecting me the way I thought it should maybe. I was letting, really letting other people tell me who I was. And then I was just extrapolating on that by posting all the pretty photos and all of the good things and sharing all of the good things. And it was a vicious cycle because I was making myself look better than I was to other people and knowing inside that I didn't match up to that. So I would say that that was really a theme through my whole life is trying to figure out who I was. And and I did not even know who I was until I got sober. and And so I feel like the last three years really has been Finding out who I am and liking who I am and finding out what I like, what I don't like, what feels good, what doesn't feel good, what tastes good, what doesn't taste good. All of those things that you should develop through your life, I've really started learning about just in the last few years. Here's
0: Canadian musician Sean McCann and his wife, Andrea Argon, talking about the experience of writing a book together to really flesh out both sides of the story about marriage and recovery in their book, One Good Reason.
13: I spent about a year writing my story, and that was a hard thing to do. But at the end of the year, we read it. I just didn't feel like it was the whole story. It didn't feel complete to me. Everything was truthful, and it was, you know, it was difficult, but it wasn't all there. And then Andrea had been keeping a journal in real time uh, during a lot of the events, uh, certainly in our relationship. She showed me a couple of those uh, journal entries. They were very eye-opening and sobering for me. That was the other side of the story. So, we decided to write the book together so we'd have a comprehensive look at, at what the truth really was from every angle. I don't think you can tell a story of a marriage from one side of that marriage.
3: He showed me a particular chapter that he was writing and his memory of it. And then I was like, whoa, there's a whole lot more to what happened that night. Because I had written down our conversation from that night verbatim. And I let him read it. And it was the first time that he had read. What it did to me, what that night did to me, that particular instance, you know, it, it affected him and it, and it shocked him. And it, he didn't have any recollection of it because he had been drinking and I was sober. I think the way that Sean describes it now is like a victim impact statement. It hit him like that.
13: That's what it read like. And, well, you know, the facts of his story. But as an alcoholic and as a drunk person, you, you're not capable of, of really comprehending, certainly not in the moment what the consequences of your actions really are. And it's one thing to look back at something 5 years later, but to to actually have the living document the the her words that very night mm-hmm. on the page, th- it doesn't get more real or more raw than that. And that's what we wanted to do with this book. We didn't want to shy away from from things that were difficult because it is a difficult thing. You got to start from there.
3: I would take it chapter by chapter and add my part to it. This is what happened in my world on that same event so it's it's the same event looking at it through two different lenses and i think that's you know not only what happens in a marriage but certainly what happens when um you're a person living with an addict and even a recovering recovering addict because we go into those chapters too for me it was letting everybody know that it's not just the addict that goes through the crisis you know it's everybody in their orbit and i was in sean's orbit
0: others find the message of recovery we champion on the bubble hour plus get access to the entire backlist ad-free by joining us on patreon patron support helps with the ongoing expense of making free versions of the show available as well as the cost to make new content like our spin-off podcast tiny bubbles become a bubble hour patron today at patreon.com slash the bubble hour and help us help others through stories of strength and hope I get a lot of email and direct messages as host and producer of this show. About half of it was feedback from listeners, and the other half was guest pitches, meaning people that wanted to be on the show for one reason or another. One day, I got a message that was really different. It just asked, how do you choose guests for your show? I got these kind of messages all the time, but there was something about this that just seemed off. I replied as I always did. The guests of the show needed to be people in recovery with 90 days of abstinence from alcohol and drugs who were willing to tell their story about what it was like, how they made a change, and what it's like now. But there was just something odd about that exchange. It lacked the usual friendliness of our community. I didn't think much of it, but I do remember it. Some people are just succinct in their writing style. It doesn't need to be interpreted as rudeness or abruptness, but it did stand out. I didn't hear back from the sender. I wrote them again to ask if they were interested in participating in the show and got no reply. Well, within a short period of time, my message inbox went from busy to booming. Later, I would find out that that inquiry was actually from someone who was covertly gathering information to develop a marketing list, later sold to PR firms. I was a little bit annoyed that someone had used our show in that way. The upside was I was learning about a ton of authors I would have never otherwise found. Instead of focusing on the big names that were already making the rounds to other podcasts, I decided to make an effort to shine a light on recovery resources that don't get as much attention as some of the bigger names and publishing houses. Whether they found the Bubble Hour by Googling top recovery shows or hired a PR firm that used a marketing list, writers from around the world wanted to be part of the Bubble Hour so they could tell their story to you. Some of the most interesting conversations I've had have been with these lesser-known recovery writers doing big things a little off the beaten path. Swimmer Carlin Pipes told a fascinating story about losing her Olympic dreams to addiction, then coming back in her 30s to not only win numerous high-level championships, but also to receive a full college scholarship in her book, The Do-Over.
1: The wonders of sob- of sobriety and recovery were that gratitude and the coming alive, and how everything looked better and tasted better, and it was like who wouldn't want this compared to the darkness that I'd been to. And to be honest, it started out very slowly. I gave myself permission to get back in the water. I started racing, and I started doing really well, and that was really neat. Because I thought, wow, I got my body back. I got my physical body back. I'm healthy. Swimming really, really helped my recovery just because it took up time and it gave me something to do, and it made me feel good about myself. And so anybody out there that is looking at time and recovery, I strongly suggest the best drug in the world is exercise because it gives you all those good feelings and it makes you feel good about yourself, and there's really not many side effects. Then I realized I started taking classes and I got my brain back. I started thinking, wow, I'm actually a pretty decent student if I'm not distracted by my other addictions. And that was really cool. And then eventually I ended up going back to college on a full swimming scholarship. And hence the name of the book is called The Do-Over. I got to do over all of these things that I completely screwed up the first time around. And that was that was wonderful.
0: Today, I'm holding space for American photographer and author Michael Blanchard. His recent release, Through a Sober Lens, A Photographer's Journey, combines photography and personal essays to illuminate the recovery experience and show the beauty and hope beyond the darkness. Michael Blanchard, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Your work is absolutely stunning.
14: Thank you for having me, Jean. I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot in my travel about something called post-traumatic growth, where um, an individual cannot get to a place that they've managed to get themselves to in terms of becoming the person they're supposed to be without going through the trauma and then coming out the other side. I was on my way down on the final stages of alcoholism and addiction. And I decided that in desperation, I was going to start taking Xanax and stop drinking alcohol that somehow I would get rid of the habit of alcohol by staying calm on Xanax. And then when the alcohol urges went away, I would stop the Xanax. Well, it didn't work. During that period of time, I got arrested three times in three months for um, drunk driving. I completely fell apart. I got sent to a psychiatric hospital uh, for two weeks To get where I am now, I, I didn't have any plan on getting here. It was the first time in my life I didn't set goals and work every day to achieve a goal. It was because I was led someplace for a reason. And when I was laying in the bed in the psychiatric hospital, a physician, the medical director of all things, leaned over me and he said, I used to be you. He said there was a time when I had a blood alcohol of over 600 and I was on life support here at the health system. His willingness to share his soul with me created like an energy shift in me in some way. I remember saying to myself, if I ever make it back from all of this, I'm going to be authentic just like him. It was just not easy coming back. But I somehow never drank again because somehow when I went to rehab for three months, for the first time in my life, I started to love myself again. And I felt like I was worth something. I bought a little camera and I'd go out. And I started noticing when I would go out at night that suddenly I got excited about the evening after coming home from work instead of dreading not drinking alcohol. I I would say, wow, look at those clouds. I got to get out there and see this. Maybe I can take a cool picture. And I would go out and take picture after picture and learn and learn. I became so much into it. Photographs can be really powerful, but there's something magical that. When you look at a photograph and something comes into your heart that you want to express because of what that photograph is saying to you, and you write about it and you attach it, it becomes magical. I was able to get stuff out of me and almost self-psychoanalyze by writing about my struggles that were prompted by the photographs that I was taking. I have a gallery on Martha's Vineyard and people are coming from all over the country and sometimes they walk into the gallery and they just start crying. But what it tells me is that I've touched them in a way that when they come in, they're just so emotional because, you know, maybe there's something I said that helped them get through a bad period or got them into a rehab facility or something. And they want to say thank you. And and it's just such a warm connection with people. And it all came through these photographs and, and, and writing the stories.
0: Today, we meet Lucy Hall, a woman in successful long-term recovery for more than 30 years, author of Hope Dealer, A Complete Guide from Rehab to Recovery, and the subject of a fantastic documentary called Hope Village. Lucy Hall, welcome to the Bubble Hour.
15: Thank you, Jean, and thank you for that introduction. I'm honored to hang out with you for a little bit.
0: In your book, you write each chapter from three different voices, the addict's voice, the clinician's voice, and the ally's voice.
15: So first, to the addict, to that person who's still out there suffering. That part of the book is to help them to realize that recovery is possible. It's to encourage and enlighten them on how they can access recovery. When I speak to the clinician, it is because I am a clinician at heart. They get to hear some of the lessons learned. And if you're a clinician, like you could be a licensed, you know, LPC or LMSW or LCSW who've never been in recovery. So I share some of the plight from that lens. a person in recovery who's also a clinician saying, hey, here's how we can work this thing together. Because when you're working with people in recovery, they always want to know, are you in recovery? And as a clinician, you don't have to be in recovery. We're all in recovery from something. How, as a clinician, who can say, I feel successful and helpful to my clients is because I know I've checked these things off. And then, of course, to the ally, to that family member, to that friend, to that coworker, whoever it is, we all know somebody who needs recovery. Every person knows somebody who's either in recovery or needs recovery. And so speaking to them about how to do an intervention, speaking to them about how to best address and approach somebody who needs recovery instead of pointing the finger. Because the minute you start pointing the finger at people, they back up and they start defending themselves. There's not a person alive that's not recovering from something. We all know what it's like to come back from something. There are so many women, who nobody wanted to help them with their mental health, so they started self-medicating. So many people out there are using as a way of coping with the voices, the depression, the anxiety, the pain that they feel in their physical body. Today, everybody that's using is not using because they don't have nothing else to do. I would love to celebrate life, you know, celebrate recovery celebrate my milestones, celebrate those things that are important every day, even in the turmoil we live in in this world today. I mean, everywhere there's turmoil. There is, we can focus on that and let it be a downward spiral, or we can pray about that and continue to live life on life's terms. We only get one day. So if whatever I can do in this day is what I need to focus on. There's an opportunity in every day. There are opportunities to do the right thing, to make yourself and others better, and to reach somebody who needs to be encouraged. I love to encourage people.
0: Definitely an encouraging and inspiring voice. Indeed. That was Lucy Hall, author of Hope Dealer, A Complete Guide to Recovery. So that was just a sample of some of the more than 50 authors that have been featured on the Bubble Hour over the years. Check the show notes for links to purchase some of the books that we talked about today and visit the show archives to see some other amazing writers who have shared their stories of strength and hope on the Bubble Hour. In the next episode, I'll share some of my favorite moments from the past decade. Come back soon and listen in. Until then, my friends, please take good care.
4: I own it, I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. It, on it just stays in wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see it, oh, I want I did that Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free